0: Welcome to the Data Leadership Lessons Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony J. Algman. Data is everywhere in our businesses and it takes leadership to make the most of it. We bring you the people, stories, and lessons to help you become a data leader. We've partnered with Dataversity to provide listeners with 20% off your first training center purchase with promo code AlgmanDL. Go to dataleadershiptraining.com to learn more. Today on episode 74, we welcome Dave Combs. Dave is a songwriter, entrepreneur, successful business executive, and Amazon best-selling author. Over the past four decades, he has written over 120 songs and created 15 albums of soothing, relaxing, instrumental piano music, including the popular standard Rachel's Song. As an entrepreneur growing his Combs music business, Dave uses data analytics to improve customer prospecting and connect his work to people
1: who will benefit from it most. Dave, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Anthony. I'm excited to be here. We're going to have a great time.
0: Absolutely. We are excited to have you. So why don't we start like we do with all of our guests and just give us a little bit of that story of your career, of, of where you started and kind of how you found music and how it led to business and writing. I mean, this is quite a journey so give us give us the the high level view and we'll, we'll kind of take it from there
1: well let me start all even further back than my music story let's go back to when i graduated from college in 1969 now some of your audience will probably appreciate the fact that i learned to program a computer on an ibm 1620 which was as big as a desk and had 32k of memory we used punch cards and the output device was a 10 character per second uh, IBM typewriter. That was the output, uh, and so that was the beginning of my life with programming and and data. I my career started out after college. I went to work for a company called Western Electric, which later became it was part of the Bell System and later became AT and T. So I did computer programming. I programmed bill, billing systems, employee account systems, all everything, and I programmed in something uh, today's programmers thinks uh, antique language, but it was COBOL. C-O-B-O-L. Oh, and yeah. It's, uh, it's, it was a, a great language, and I I loved programming in it, and uh, I was very successful at it and enjoyed it tremendously. And so i worked in AT&T, Western Electric, uh, for 22 and a half years. I finally left the company in 1992. But uh, in that interim time period, uh, I got my MBA from Wake Forest University. I'd was like like most you and other folks like yourself. You got to go back and get your MBA. So you're really prepared for today's evolved rapidly changing business environment. I love to uh, I love analytics. I love uh, I'm a very analytical person. So I love business and and learning how to organize and manage and analyze businesses. And so I've worked in the Western Electric environment for many years including managing a factory i had over a thousand people working for me on a factory floor at one time all three shifts we could talk for days on a, the stories that went on in the on the factory but uh while i was doing that uh, back up i was a musician all my life i grew up in a family of musicians my mother and father both played the piano my grandmother combs played the old pump organ and the auto harp and i'm from tennessee now, Anthony, if you know anybody from Tennessee, I think it's a state law that you have to be able to play an instrument if you live in Tennessee. I think you're right, yeah. So uh, I grew up <laughs> around music, and of course, I worked at AT&T Western Electric during the day, but in, in the evenings, uh, music was my one of my fa- favorite hobbies and on weekends and so forth. So uh, by 1981, I was working at home one evening, or actually came home from work and relaxing at home. And my way of relaxing is to sit down at the piano and just play something. Now, since this is a show that probably has an audience of a lot of technical folks, I noticed that in my career around technical people, there's a really close correlation between technology and technical people, engineers and that kind of thing, and music. Uh, You know, I'd go to classes and, and these places where we'd be studying and they'd have a piano over there and there'd be some Ph.D., a Bell Labs engineer sitting over there playing the piano. So it's very, I think there's a really high correlation between technology and technical things and music. So music was always a big part of my life. And starting in 1981, when I wrote the first song called Rachel's Song, that was the beginning of the transition of my career from fully technical and business management side to thinking about how could I make a living doing something on my own with my own creativity. So we'll get into the stories of how it evolved, but basically I started with one song, wrote over 120 songs eventually, 15 albums of music, uh, sold my music all over the country and now all over the world through the internet. So my career has started out on the technical side and I used that technical experience and uh, proclivity to Grow my music business and then basically evolve it into a very highly technical and digital world of the current music world.
0: You know, I I, I love music and I think that you're onto something with this correlation uh, between you know data folks, technical folks, and 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 musicians, or at least you know there seems to be a lot of that 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 percolates. I've definitely seen it as well. Do do you feel like? in music, you're using that technical brain directly? Like, do you approach problems or, or, or create music using any kind of parallel to what you would do when you were working in a, in a technical environment?
1: Well, you know, music is a uh, a combination of tones, which all have frequencies, which are all very mathematical, <clears throat> and their relationship's mathematical as well. And I've always been intrigued by what makes a hit song you know how come and you've probably experienced this too first time you ever heard one of your favorite songs that eventually became a big hit first time you ever heard it you thought you probably said to yourself I know that's gonna be I like that That's gonna be a hit well I had that same kind of phenomenon several times and I've always been intrigued by what makes one song be a, a big hit and another one not such so popular and a lot of it falls back, I think, upon the, the physics and the psychological relationship between the tones and your, your body's hearing and the brain processing sound and, and all of that. So I think there is some, if you really dive, dove into it uh, scientifically, you could probably find some scientific relationship that you could really study about how music affects the human body and, and why you like one song versus another. And so I but in writing songs, I, I have to say, I don't I don't really think about uh, analyzing, except that I, I look at structure. <clears throat> Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Most songs. I write songs that have a lot of verse chorus kind of structure. And a musician would, you know, they'll say, well, there's a four bar intro to this song. Well, there's four measures of, of introduction. Well, those kind of thinking about, well, a song is maybe, uh, you know, a, a verse of a song may be eight bars long or, or 16. There's, there's some even numbers usually in a, in a song. Uh, so there is some mathematical or physical or technical structure to a song. And I make sure, I think most of you, if you listen to most of my songs, they are structured in, a, in some way to fit some kind of a pattern of a verse and a chorus and that kind of thing. But to really sit down and say, I don't really try to analyze and and uh, calculate or plan in terms of any kind of a technical way of this, the song itself. I kind of let my, sitting at the piano, I sit at the piano to write my music and I, I call it having a conversation with the piano, just me and the keyboard and mm. I'm playing and I'm listening to what the sounds sound like and say, hmm, well, that sounds like I need to go here and that and you just, you just, let the creativity flow so it's not so much a conscious it's not a conscious effort to uh, to create it's a more a, almost a subconscious effort
0: that that resonates with me a lot, and and I think the structure is is a good word to to talk about how those are, are comparable. I also I also recall like when I was doing a lot of programming, you know, everybody had those those days where you were programming, where you're trying to solve a particular thing, and you're just beating your head against the wall trying to find that the right answer. I don't think that feels as much like the music creation as those rare moments where like like you mentioned flow. There were times when I was programming where I saw the problem and I knew exactly what needed to happen. And it felt like the answers were just flowing through my fingers on the keyboard. It almost felt like I was playing an instrument, like I was mm-hmm. playing a piano or something like that, because I was just so connected to the answer, to the creation that I was trying to do. But that's where it's that, that artistic side mm-hmm. of where we are technologists, where the the that pro- problem solving, the, the literal breakdown of, of challenges, that's one side of your brain. And then the other side is where you're doing this creation, where you're creating new functionality there's got to be um, you know some parallels in, in the way the brain works through some of those those items. so that's interesting yeah. to think about certainly the first time we've talked about that on this show <laughs> in 74 episodes um, but it, so so one thing that I have to imagine the people out there, are thinking about. They're saying, well, and and, because I'm weird, I'm weird because what we are doing here, what we're talking about data, when we're thinking about leadership challenges, we're talking about careers and stuff like this is what I love. This is what I love to do. But I think there's probably a lot of people out there that might find themselves in a similar situation or a parallel to your situation of, hey, I'm doing technology work, maybe like it, find it interesting. But the love, the passion sits somewhere else. And then, how did you? While you had the career uh, time where you're doing this in the evenings and the weekends, and you're doing it out of the love, but probably for some amount of that time, you weren't fully considering it being a, a another chapter in your career. How did you pivot there? How did you find that transition point to say from saying this is a hobby to this is what I do now? What was that
1: like? Well, it's. Uh... And I like to describe your life in terms of there. You, you go through life with several different kinds of moments. You, you have uh, defining moments where something happens and alters the course of your life, but you have no control over it, you know, like a 9-11 or some, some, some out external force that happens. That's a defining moment. And then there are threshold moments where you have a decision to make. You come up to a, a, an intersection, and you say, well, do I go left or right, or do I just stay where I am? And that's true in business, in, in, well, even in, <laughs> in programming or whatever. You've got, you got to decide, you know, which way am I going to go with this solution of my problem. And so those are threshold moments. And then there are those what I call aha moments. Those are those where the light bulb comes on, and you say, now I get it. Yes, yes, you just get a fist pump. I've, I've got it now. So uh, one of those aha moments came to me when my music, which I always loved, and I had written my first song, Rachel's song, and I knew everybody loved it. It was named after our goddaughter, and uh, I played it a lot personally to, for people. And then on one of my business trips to implement a computer manufacturing software uh, system, at an MRP kind of system at a factory in Nashville, Tennessee, i went and got a recording made of rachel's song as a demo and the huh. demo recording was made by a young man by the name of gary prim a studio musician that i met and the result of what he created for me was so far above any expectation i had it was one of those aha moments like I, it just wowed me you know what I, I gave him a piece of paper with a few notes on it and what I walk out of the studio with is as good a sounding song as I ever heard on the radio. I mean, it's it's just wow. so above any expectation. So that to me was the point where I've, <laughs> you'll laugh at this, I was on my way back to the hotel from the recording studio and I was playing Rachel's song over and over and over. And I played it so many times that I actually missed my exit in Nashville and circled the town about twice before I even realized that I was lost. And... Uh, but I kept saying to myself when I heard the music, this is it. You know, I don't know whether you've ever had that occur to you or not, but when you, like, well, maybe you did, let's say you, you, you I don't know whether you're married or not, but let's say you met your the, the bride, the, the person you're gonna marry, and you walk away and say, man, she is it. That's the one. <laughs> well, I was saying that about my music in that car. The, the music was playing, and, and I just said, this is it. Now, I had no clue what it was, i just knew that this was going to be important and i guess that's when the 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 ball started rolling with can i could i possibly turn this into a, an enterprise where i could do my music full-time and I, that became revealed to me as as i exposed it to people i got it played on the radio the response from the radio listeners was just overwhelming and so that was affirming that i was that i really had something and uh... I wrote an article in Guideposts magazine about uh, my music, and it was, went out to three million people, and I heard from over 10,000 people in nothing flat, uh, in like two weeks, about my music. Hmm. My mail came in a big canvas bag that I couldn't even pick up, and it was amazing. So that was the evolution of my thinking about my music evolved as I saw its receptivity. It's like if you came up with a new product, whether it's a physical gadget or a product, any kind of product. And you find that people love that product. And then all you've got to think about is, well, now how could I mass manufacture this product and how could I market it? And that's that's the beginnings of a new business. And I felt the same way about my music, that I had a new product. It was a new song. Everybody loved it. And all I had to do was figure out how to get people to hear it and want to buy it. And so that, that was my evolution from my, still doing my, tech, my job at, at Western Electric AT&T. But in the evenings and on weekends, my thoughts began to f- go over to my music business. I wanted to grow my music business, which I was able to do and quit my job in 1992 and, and say goodbye to the corporate world of AT&T and hello, entrepreneurship and all the things that go along with that from that point forward.
0: That's that's amazing. And and there's so many things that are relatable in your story of of that kind of transition and and realizing that, hey, you have this opportunity and you 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 nurture it and you you expand on it and you find some success. And then you figure out how can I how can I lean into this and expand that success and ultimately turn it into a business and, and what have you. I think it's it's a good lesson. I think, to understanding, you know, sometimes when you do something well and you know that this is a thing that you, you're you uniquely good at, how do you amplify that more versus how instead of spending all of your time doing the things that you're not good at, there's times where you just need to amplify what you truly are good at. And sometimes we, we forget that. Sometimes we're like, oh, well, I got to go learn this other thing because I want to be more well-rounded or it's a part of my job or whatever. But sometimes you just got to you got to find what is it that is you and and that you can uniquely do well to add value for whomever is is going to experience whatever that is and and that i think is, is eminently relatable in the business world as well as as in the more artistic sense
1: yes and i fortunately i was able to use my background in, in business and my training in math i'm a math major physics minor so i'm a, a, a scientist by mathematics and uh I was able to use those skills in helping me grow my business. Uh, one of the, the challenges that I had early on as I had my first album, Rachel's song, the, I'd written other songs and produced a CD. And uh, the CD, it looks like, like this. And uh, it has my first songs that I ever wrote on it. Well, the, problem, the, the issue is, well, now that I have a CD, how do I sell it? How do I get it out to the masses? And, you know, there are ways to there are people that are already selling music. And back then we had record stores people, stores that only sold records. Well, we don't have much of those anymore. But uh, uh, back then we did. But those people would not carry my music. They didn't they didn't ever heard of me. I was a nobody and they were only interested in the big names. So that was a little discouraging, but it it didn't stop me. I, I knew that i just had to find another way to reach my audience of people that i knew loved my music i mean they heard it on the radio they wrote me letters by the thousands so i decided that there's got to be another way and that other way happened to not be one that i had even thought of myself it happened quite by accident or maybe it wasn't an accident but i call those god winks where (laughs) the good lord's taking care of me when i'm not taking care of myself but uh Anyway, a friend of mine that I was working with at 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 AT&T, she had a friend of hers who owned a gift shop. And she says, Dave, can I give one of your CDs to my friend Jane that owns this gift shop down in Old Town, Alexandria, Virginia? Now, if you've ever been there, you know that's a wonderful tourist town. It's a great place to just wander around in shops and places to eat. And so she gave a CD of Rachel's song to her friend Jane jane played it in her shop the name of the shop was called america it played she played mm-hmm. and sold americana kind of the patriotic stuff mm-hmm. flags and anything red white and blue and so mm-hmm. she played put rachel's song in her five cd changer and so when john philip souza would finish playing here comes dave combs and his rachel song music <laughs> it was quite a contrast when you when you contrast big uh, pompous music to my soothing relaxing music And what happened was everyone in the shop would stop and go over to her counter and say, Jane, what's that music you're playing? I'd like to take that home with me. Well, the next thing I know, I get a phone call from Jane that says, Dave, I'm Jane that owns this uh, America store and everybody wants to buy your music. Would you sell me some at wholesale? I said, well, sure. So we reached an agreement and everything. And and uh, that evening I boxed up a box of set tape, cassette tapes and CDs at the time and Linda and I made it, we were living in Maryland at the time, so we jumped in the car and we drove down to Old Town, Alexandria and took her a box of music. Well, that was the first wholesale sale of, of my music and I had no idea what was going to happen. Three or four days later, I get another phone call from Jane, and she says, Dave, uh, those are all gone. How about let's double that order and bring me some more quick. <laughs> so Linda and I made that, that trip down to Old Town Alexandria every week for a year and a half. It was, And she sold wow. thousands and thousands of tapes of, of just that one album. And so that was the time when I my, my analytical thoughts kicked in. I created myself a spreadsheet. Even before Excel it even existed, we still had a computer, something called a spreadsheet, and oh, yeah. so I made me a spreadsheet with Jane's business model on it. I said, "Okay, here's how many tapes and CDs she's sold. Here's how much I sold them to her for. Here's how much how much they cost me, and here's my gross profit at the bottom of how much you know per week or per month or whatever time frame you want to look at it." And well, that's a pretty interesting number, and I thought, and then's when Linda and I got to thinking, and I said, well, what if we had just one gift shop per state, like Jane's? Okay, well, I made me another column in my spreadsheet with column one times five, I mean, 50. So 50 times column one. Well, the bottom line number was a much more interesting number, as you can imagine. And so I said, well, this is looking good. And I said, well, what if we just had five in each state? Let's do 250. That, that's really shooting for the moon here. There's 250 in the third column. And you'd add them all up look at the bottom number, and I said, Linda, come here. Look at this. This bottom line, that's twice what I make it work. <laughs> so so <laughs> then's when the light bulb really went off, came on, and uh, the, uh, the idea said, I have got to multiply and duplicate what I've got going with this one gift shop. And so mm-hmm. that was the analytical side of me kicking in and deciding that this is the model that I need to replicate. And that's really kind of an entrepreneurial business principle that I really preach to a lot to anybody thinking about a business. You, you find a business model on a small scale that works. Don't mm-hmm. throw your whole life savings into something when you don't know when something's going to work or not. But you find you a model and you test it out and you make sure it works. And once you know that it works, then you go like gangbusters and find every way you can in the world to replicate what you just did on a small scale. And that's a business principle that'll, that'll get you a long way.
0: I think that's an incredible uh, bit of advice, and it immediately got me thinking, because I I have a background in in consulting, and and I have a lot of of consultants and entrepreneurs on, on the show, but I think about, like, it's such a benefit when you have a product that can be replicated and distributed, and so I have two questions for you. One is, like, is there a parallel in the services industry of doing kind of what you did on the music side, where we were selling CDs and 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 tapes and at these yeah. gift stores, and, and seeing that that expansion plan um, kind of coalesce and 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 drive uh, some real growth, um, can you do that when you're when you, what you're selling is people's time? How does that work? Because that seems like it, it breaks down. And then the other thing is, is can that model in music work anymore with how everything <laughs> has changed to all these streaming services or whatever? Is is that is that a business model that has been broken and that there is not going to be a Dave Combs potential in today's generation because of the way the music industry has changed?
1: Well, let me answer your second question first. Uh Yes, indeed, the music business has tremendously evolved and changed from what it was with the sale of physical CDs and cassette tapes back in the 80s and early part of the 90s. And then in the latter part of the 90s, the world went basically digital. You may recall Napster come, came out and was basically selling the digital copies of music for free. You could download music on the internet for free, which was illegal, and they did get punished for it they got sued and mm-hmm. fortunately that got stopped but in the process of that it really absolutely killed the music industry the sales of music because if you can ask any musician that was living through the early nineties and mid nineties and late nineties <clears throat> what Napster did to them was it just took a nosedive and it never really did recover from that in terms of the physical sales because the whole world then Evolved very quickly into a digital medium and so fortunately mm-hmm. iTunes came along with Apple and they started selling A song for 99 cents to download well that kind of revived the the music business for the most part It still was a very uh, low number in terms of you know when you're used to selling an album for 15 dollars All of a sudden you just get 99 cents for one song and you don't the, the artist and the songwriter they don't get the full 99 cents either so right. it's it's a very small, uh, your margins suddenly just almost disappeared, but the world evolved from that to streaming and downloading, mo- mostly streaming now. When you want to hear music, mm-hmm. you just you just stream it uh, through a Pandora or a Spotify or iHeartRadio, any of those uh, streaming facilities. But yes, the. If I had to start over today and do try to do what I did in the 90s to build my business from one album to 15 and make a living at it, I don't know I I don't I won't say I couldn't do it, but it would be a much 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 tougher challenge to uh, accomplish that because, you know, I I literally sold hundreds of thousands of albums of physical CDs and tapes over those years. And now it's now, now my music is downloaded and streamed. It's streamed millions of times. I, I, there's, I get reports every month from Spotify and all these places how much it's streamed. It's streamed millions of times. But you know how much I get per stream on a song? 0.2 pennies. dollars $0.002 per stream. Now, that's not a lot of money. You have to make a, have a ton of streaming to make any kind of uh, living out of that. Now, people that have the streams in the tens of millions or whatever, yeah, they make a pretty good living at it. but that's not most people. but mm-hmm. um, and your 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 other question was uh, what? Uh,
0: well, it, it was around the the services industry oh, or anything yes, yeah. based on
1: people the, the translation.
0: because I have a third question in the wings that ties those together, but but okay. what do you think about those services businesses?
1: Well, I think the principle that I'm talking about of replication, a small business model and replication, does apply to the service uh, industry because yes, you may not be able to replicate yourself physically, like if you're a consultant and you go and physically consult with somebody, but you certainly mm-hmm. can replicate yourself these days with uh, with video, with uh, you know you post YouTube training sessions. A lot of people make a very good living creating uh, marketing courses. Uh, consulting courses on and very detailed and they can basically duplicate themselves through YouTube or whatever uh, uh, video medium that they they can use to charge for their services so it does apply but it's not it's a little bit different Sell. you still have to find ways to reach your customers and have them be willing to pay you a certain fee for attending your course or taking your course or hiring you to come speak virtually at a keynote address or whatever but so there are parallels, but it's a it's a bit more of a challenge, I think, today. And it's certainly a crowded um, it's like music. There's just mm-hmm. more, probably a hundred times more music today than there was back in the 80s and 90s. And uh, likewise, with the podcasts and video and consulting, there's all kinds of competition. So it's a very crowded uh, marketplace.
0: Yeah, that's. I think that's a good point, and and there's certainly lower barriers to entry on on anything that's content creation oriented. And I think the consulting side of where you're individually working and helping to problem solve and troubleshoot with, uh, you know, business and executives and, and what have you. There's going to be a place for that, and and where I see it getting interesting is that perhaps the music industry is moving a bit more towards like the service consulting industry where like is the music industry becoming more performance oriented where you may not be able to sell the music um as as effectively uh and 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 piece by piece the the way we once did but is there an increased demand due to the exposure of of millions of downloads for example of of your music is their demand for like seeing the music performed live is that is that dynamic changing in the in the market or is that just a separate business model entirely? Whereas they're they're evolving somewhat independently as opposed to like I'm trying to mash them together mm-hmm. to think about the role of a consultant as it per as it parallels the role of a musician. I'm I'm trying to figure out whether or not even these these parallels make
1: sense or are, are working, <laughs> but there's something to it, right? There is, and there, when you talk about the music business, there, there is a big old, almost a Bible book, of, of a handbook about the music business, and the title of the book is The Businesses, Plural, of Music. And I think that, if you think about it, there is not just one music business. Yes, there is a whole uh, aspect of the music business where you're talking about performers, you know these performing mm-hmm. artists now I'm, I'm a songwriter I'm not a performing artist I write the songs and I turn them over to Gary Prim to arrange and record for me and then we sure. sell the the recordings but there are people recording artists these wonderful you know like Dolly Parton and uh, Randy Travis in the day and uh, and Alan Jackson you know Michael Jackson all of those performing artists they made they created i guess the demand for their product through their performances and there's that's still a very much a, a great business model if you are a per, a talented performer and have mm-hmm. uh, uh, the built and usually have some backing to to help you know fund your your concerts and that kind of thing so yes you can still make a good living at that but there are far fewer of those than there are the masses of people who are what I would call the struggling musicians trying to just make a living and playing in their local clubs or or whatever, uh, so that there is that aspect is really it's kind of bifurcated. There's the performing side that's the big famous and the the big big people mm-hmm. famous people, and then there's the rest of us that are either uh, performing and trying to do it, or and and then there's the songwriting the uh, the cre- the music creation side of things. People who write music And Nashville and is full of those wonderful folks there the songwriters almost always want to move to Nashville because that's where it's all happening and they can have chance to to pitch their product then to the actual the big-name performers that would take their song and put make it a big hit but yeah there's a if, if you if you analyze the music business it there are lots of little you can carve it into different kinds of music business, whether it's the performing or the physical product or the streaming, the downloads, the how you how you advertise or market it. Uh, it's it, it's a pretty complicated business model. But and then and likewise on the the service side, you know, there's that it can be pretty, pretty uh, complicated as well. You some people have made a very good living creating a brand for themselves. That they can then put their courses together with them, basically teaching their their uh, subject matter, and they probably have written books to go along with it. So they have a, a book to sell as well as a course, and then they probably command a pretty good fee to do a speaking engagement uh, on their subject. So there's mm. uh, that's a that's kind of a parallel to it, I believe.
0: Yeah, that 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 definitely. Uh resonates and and i just think about like i've I've been able to visit nashville a few times and and memphis i spent a lot of time in. and it's just i love music in the small venues and the in the bars with the people that are so talented you're like they should be playing stadiums and they you, they've written their own songs and you just see so many people that don't get that big break to become that famous person but are so immensely talented uh at what they do and they do it because they love it and that's that's who they are and what they do and and Mm. then you know they find their way through through that career and and that's um you know certainly uh, relatable but there's something that i i just given that the the analytics surrounding that career path is one that is not necessarily um you know looked on as as oh going into music is is a good path to great life success under most circumstances <laughs> it's generally not the way people think. um I have a deeper appreciation for people who do what they do out of love versus mm-hmm. doing what they do out of dollars and and that's that's kind of true across the board, but I think you see that passion so pronounced in the way people do their work in that space exactly so. As you, as we see how things have evolved in, in music and how they've evolved in, on the business side of music, which is, is you know, to have that kind of career in, in music in any of these roles, really, you, you have to start to understand some of the dynamics of, of the business behind it and some of the data and some of the opportunities there because under the best circumstances you, you're likely to struggle um, do you have any other things that you have encountered along this journey around data around you know managing a business around being an entrepreneur even around like the book that you wrote tied back to some of this how have you how have you kind of pieced that together in, in more recent years to um, kind of uh, continue to expand that business that you've created
1: well a lot of it has had to do with how do you use today's technology platforms to sell your product whether it's a mm-hmm. musical product or a book or a course or whatever it is that you're selling <clears throat> that can be distributed electronically through the internet and of course the publishing business has totally turned its on its head you used to when you wrote a book you'd get a publisher and you'd they'd, uh, they'd oh we have to print uh, 15,000 books minimum or something so a lot of these authors would end up with a, a garage full of boxes of their old book that never sold. <laughs> but today's technology, you know, when, you, when, they, when somebody wants to go on Amazon and, and look up my book, if they order one book, they print one book. It's print on demand. There is no more inventory of books. And that business model has completely changed. So that has basically lowered the, the barrier of entry into writing a book to almost zero. I mean, you, anybody can put together a, on a word processor, a word document and create a PDF of a book, design your cover and upload it to Amazon. And whammo, you've got you got yourself a book. Now it's not quite exactly that simple. But uh, it, that's uh, technologically wise it is. And uh, so people can buy upload and become published authors uh, without any diff- any barrier to entry any friction. And the same with music. I can create on my laptop computer here, I have a, you know, garage band studio that's got more tracks and channels than the big multi-million dollar studios used to have. And mm-hmm. so you can create your product today at home in your home studio uh, as easily as you, you could years ago in a big studio. And you can also publish it on the internet as, as easy. but that doesn't mean that you're going to be able to necessarily make a living at it because you and a few million of your closest friends are doing the same thing. And so you have to find ways to distinguish yourself. And so then you get into the issue of how do I uh, generate some publicity and marketing and awareness of my product. And fortunately, my my favorite uh, thing to do is exactly what we're doing right now, is on podcasts. There, are, I think somebody told me the other day there are over 2 million podcasts uh, on the Internet. Well, that's a yeah. that's a tremendous number of podcasts. But I am thoroughly enjoying doing this because, there, you know, I never know when somebody's listening to my podcast or me talking on a podcast that I'm going to connect with. And maybe a, they'll get an idea from something that I said that, that will trigger something for them that they will be able to go and run with it. And so I've, I'm concentrating on using the podcast platform to basically get my message out. I think my mission today has changed from selling so many CDs and, and tapes to basically informing people about my book and my music so that they will hopefully be curious enough about it to go f- listen to the music and maybe even go buy the book. or Even <laughs> you can go on Amazon and listen to two or three chapters of my book or read some of them free. It would have to have a look inside yeah. feature. So uh, my mission is to spread the, uh, my music and my book. And one of the podcasters I talked to the other day, she says, Dave, I think your mission is to spread happiness. And I said, well, I like that because my music yeah. does kind of engender peace and happiness. And the more I can spread it, the better off the whole world will be. So I guess that is my mission to spread happiness.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely would agree with that. I think about why I do this data leadership lessons podcast, and it's it's because I want to share my passion with other people, and and the more we do that for all of us, as we share our passions with other people, good things happen. And you don't always have to be, you know, predictive on that. You can let things happen. You can do things because you love them and see where it goes. Um, though it it, you know, certainly a good idea to have a plan. Um. <laughs> Sometimes and I think your story is a is, is a testament to like sometimes things just fall in line too when you do what you love. And that that's good as well. Like between what you got lucky or, or the 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 benefits of, of circumstance that you had at various points coupled with the work you did to amplify that selectively, you know, led you to the successful career that that you've been able to enjoy and, and be able to share with folks. And Unfortunately, we are done for today. Like, we don't have much more. We don't have any more time to, to talk about it. But I, I like. We knew, like we talked about pre-show. Like you're not the traditional data leadership lessons guest, but I think that folks that are listening to this understand how your story is something that we can all relate to. And I and I just want to thank you personally for sharing it with us. It's inspiring, and it and it teaches me something about myself. And I and I'm sure others out there are, are appreciating that as well.
1: Well, it's been my pleasure to have a conversation with you. I think you and I have a lot in common, and we could probably talk on for many, many hours. But I know your, your time is short, and, but I really appreciate your taking the time to let me be on your show and to be your guest. It's been my honor to do so. I appreciate that. And and um, for the folks that are listening, what's
0: the best way for them to find you or to listen to Rachel's song or your other music or or find you on, on Amazon? Where's the best place to go to find that information?
1: Well, I would suggest that they start by going to my website, which is combsmusic.com, C-O-M-B-S music dot com. And when you get to my website, you'll see uh, links to go to check out my book and my music. And there will be ways to listen to samples of my music. And you can also, if you want to listen to some of my previous uh, podcasts of where I've been on as a guest talking about these kind of things. And there's also an interview on there because the the forward to my book was written by somebody we all know called, his name is Jack Canfield. Jack mm-hmm. is the guy who co-wrote the uh, co-author of the book, the books, the series, the Chick- Chicken F- Soup for the Soul series. It's hard to say that yeah. three times real fast. Chicken Soup for the Soul. But Jack wrote the forward to my book and he is a, he's a fabulous human being. He's one of those that is giving back big time and he was a huge help to me in writing my book and very encouraging and uh, his book on success principles is like getting a PhD in business. If you If you haven't read his book, you need to go get it to get that as well. But uh, go to my website and check me out. There's stories and links and everything. And also, you can write to me on email. I I read all my emails, and uh, I love to hear from people. It's uh, Dave at CombsMusic.com. Just very simple. But I'd love to hear from you. Outstanding.
0: And, And thank you again for being on the show. And thank all of you out there for watching or listening today. As always, you'll find all this information and in the links uh, that Dave's talking about in the show notes. But for those that are just listening, wanted to make sure that you got that information uh, directly from, from Dave as well. Uh, go to dataleadershiplessons.com to subscribe and check out past episodes and accelerate your journey with training at dataleadershiptraining.com. Stay safe during these unusual times and go make an impact.